The issues of the day are really complicated. Everybody loves a good hot take, but really understanding an issue takes some digging. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down to a soundbite or a tweet. Join us each week as we dig deep into pressing legal topics. Listen to It's Complicated anywhere you get your podcasts and check out our YouTube channel. I'm Francis Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hello and welcome to episode 114 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It's Wednesday, March 29th. I'm your host, Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Today, as we await news of a vote in the Manhattan District Attorney's case against Donald Trump, we'll discuss breaking developments in a court battle between the Department of Justice and Peter Navarro about handing over presidential records to the Department of Justice, as well as a deadline for the Fulton County District Attorney to respond to Donald Trump's 51-page motion to quash the special purpose grand jury report and recuse Fonnie Willis from the entire case. Now let's let's I guess <laughs> look at New York. I mean, we heard yesterday that uh, there was a delay last week, and then yesterday we found out that um, you know today being Tuesday as we're taping that they brought in the onomatopoetically named David Pecker for a second <laughs> round of questions. What, so, I mean, what do you think he said? And do you think, because my understanding is he left, he didn't, the grand jury remained, he left. So whatever, it wasn't a function of they ran out of time, so he has to come back tomorrow. The reporting I've seen was that he was finished, he departed, and then the grand jury remained there for at least another hour. Yeah, well, he's a crucial witness in the hush money payment case because he was part of that whole little group of uh of hucksters that were you know catching and killing stories you know he was he was involved him and uh keith davidson and michael cohen were all involved in catching and killing the karen mcdougall story the stormy daniels hush money payment and then uh i think it was uh shara brasher who who got a 1.6 million dollar payment from Elliot Broidy for an affair and a, to keep an abortion quiet. Uh, and, and it seemed like they were, and, and Keith Davidson would represent the person and Michael Cohen would represent the president. And it seemed like they had a little conspiracy going on to catch and kill these stories. And I, I, I remember reporting on this. It's been five years since I was talking about this, um, what I thought seemed to be a conspiracy of catch and kill to bury these stories. 
and and I, you know, again, we don't know what the second crime is going to be that will bolster the first crime of falsifying business records to a a, a felony from a misdemeanor. But he was, but David Pecker was in the room. And if you remember when Cohen was raided in April of 2018 and Barbara Jones, our favorite special master, was going through all of the stuff, um, you know, as, and, you know, working with the, the taint team, that there were taped recordings of, of Cohen and Davidson and talking about Pecker. And, and we do know that Pecker was in the room. So whatever, maybe when Costello, when Trump brought in Robert Costello, uh, in last week, last Monday, uh, this may be a rebuttal to tie up some loose ends from perhaps some of his trying to discredit Michael Cohen. Uh, I, that's the way that I kind of see it. I kind of see David Pecker coming in and playing cleanup. Uh, you know, the little guy who brushes in, you know, the 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 big stone and curling like like that's his job today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what you know, the other thing that the delay does is it calls causes all the speculation and people, you know, some more credible than others and more informed than others. But there's an interesting uh, piece written by Randall Eliason. And his concern was whether or not the Manhattan DA is going to be able to prove intent, saying, look, the statute requires proof of intent to defraud. And whatever you think about what happened, that the proof of that intent to defraud isn't there. You can, Trump could, he might've wanted to conceal an affair. He might've wanted to, or it might've been an improper campaign contribution in that, you know, that, that silence caused a political advantage for him. But at the end of the day, the intent to defraud as defined in New York state law doesn't exist. And so, I, you know, that's a fair point, but again, we, we are all, we don't have an indictment yet. We, we don't have anything to review. We're all speculating about what Bragg may or may not do, but it does, you know, the more, more time goes on, you know, for better or worse, a lot of credible, a lot more credible people, it seems to me, are are sort of speculating about the the merits or lack of merits of the case. Yeah, and, and you know, I've I've had a, mm, I've had a bee in my bonnet. Let's say that. Let's say it the <laughs> nice way uh, about what Bragg has been doing. But again, I'm only looking at the surface. I, I didn't understand the deal he gave to Weisselberg. Uh, for 100 days in jail when he had him dead to rights on a 15-year, you know, uh, stint over at Rikers. Uh, I don't understand why they tossed the entire... And they maybe they didn't, but I don't understand why, you know, Pomerantz and Dunn, um, that case, you know, they, they wanted to go big. Pomerantz wanted to go big. He wanted to do racketeering, little RICO and enterprise law up there in New York with everything. Trump organization, Trump foundation, Trump stakes, Trump wine, Trump university and find like this massive sort of put together this massive case. And he he said, and he's, you know, he put in his, I simply didn't, we didn't have the resources. It was too big to get our hands around. Uh, but there are definitely pieces of that investigation, uh, including some of the laws, both federal and state, that were uh, probably violated that the New York Attorney General Tish James has put forth in her fraud claim, her civil $250 million claim against the Trump organization that Trump was directly involved in. Uh, and uh, But again, we don't know the evidence. We don't know what he has. We don't know what he's going to charge here. But what I've, you know, I've talked to Randall Elias in a little bit. And let me see if I can explain this the best way possible. Right now, Trump is saying that these investigations or prosecutorial misconduct. They're trying to interfere in an election, right? That That's what he's saying, that this investigation interferes in the election. And doesn't that prove his intent to cover up the hush money payment? Uh, I, I mean, if you go back and think about it, uh, he, he covered that up. Uh, and now he's saying investigating it is obviously going to hurt me in the election. So doesn't that sort of show that he knows that that story getting out because he would be investigated would interfere in the 2016 election? I mean, I, I don't quite understand how he can square that circle. Yeah. And I think that's what Eliason's trying to say, point to the the intent to defraud as defined in New York state law is something other than that. And, I, you know, I'd be the first to admit, you know, A, I'm not a lawyer. B, I'm not at all an expert on New York state law. Uh, but when he's saying, look, it is not – he may or may not have been trying to conceal his affair. It may or may not have been a campaign contribution, but neither of those hit 
the New York State intent to defraud as it's been interpreted by the courts. So I think, you know, even if it was a campaign contribution, even if he was trying to hide it, the however that narrow definition of intent to defraud has been defined, that he he sees that as being problematic. So again, I it it I am also certain that Bragg and his very good prosecutors are well aware of the statutory limitations when it comes to the intent to defraud. And I cannot imagine a scenario where if it is hinging on whether or not this constitutes intent to defraud and they don't have additional evidence or additional facts to bring to bear that they would choose to indict on something that shaky against anyone, let alone a former president. So while I take some of the, you know, well, I take the concern with, uh, you know, a great deal of credibility because um, Elias a smart guy. I also think the prosecutors are no dummies. So my hope is if they choose to move forward, everything that all of us are screaming about, hey, be careful. Hey, I wish this wasn't going first, that they are not going to sort of like charge into it without having thought through that. Yeah. So so if Alvin Bragg indicts Donald, and I'm saying if, I am very interested to see what charges he brings, what crime he pairs with business records falsification uh, to make it a felony, uh, how he calculates the statute of limitations, because I, I know it's not close to being uh, to expiring, um, but Trump will raise it as defense. So we'll see the counter arguments to that. We'll know how Bragg has calculated the statute of limitations and how he proves intent. Uh, if the you know if the crimes that we're thinking of are the ones that are going to be charged, Donald is in New York right now. Um, we they did not vote on Monday, like you said. David Pecker left at about three thirty, with about you know over an hour for for the uh, grand jury to continue to deliberate. All twenty three jurors were there, which is interesting. Only sixteen are needed for a quorum. I feel like it was like just everybody be here just in case, <laughs> you know. Um, but, uh, you know, I we may see a vote Wednesday. Uh, I do think that Bragg will bring it to a vote. I, 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 I don't know whether the grand jury will return an indictment or not, but I don't think he would have brought Pecker in if he didn't intend to to bring the vote to the grand jury. And it, we have to make it clear to everybody. It's not Bragg who's indicting Donald. It's people. It's the uh, citizens. American citizens in a grand jury, uh, you know, everyday Americans that will be doing the indicting. And I think that that's going to be an important message that media and and, uh, folks need to continue to to push after, you know, this happens and any indictment for that matter that might come down the pike uh, from Fulton County. So we'll see. We'll see what happens this week. This episode comes out Wednesday, and that's when the grand jury is set to meet again. So we'll have our emergency update for the end of the week. And yeah, and sometimes, Uh you know, again, this is in a federal context. Occasionally, if there's a borderline case, sometimes prosecutors will sort of gauge the temperature of the grand jury before they give them something to vote on. And if they get a bunch of like sort of raised eyebrows and stern looks from the grand jurors, they won't even give them a bill. Because if you don't get a true bill, if the grand jury doesn't return a true bill, in other words, if you give them the indictment and they don't vote to return a true bill, I mean that that's fucking god awful. And Hello, Andy you know, McCabe, and again, and our right? good our our mutual <laughs> friend Andy McCabe, that's when they were like going after him and had a grand jury in DC. There's something we nobody knows what happened in the grand jury. We know there was a grand jury, and we know that the case was so bad and so horrible that even though they brought on these witnesses in front of the grand jury, the grand jury never voted anything out. And so there was some reporting that the prosecutors knew that the case was such politically motivated crap. That they kind of, after bringing some witnesses in, said, "You know what? We're we're we couldn't get a true bill out of here if we tried." So, I, you yeah. know, I think again, the big caveat here is I I am not at all an expert on how New York, you know, the New York's DA grand jury works, if it's the same or not. But um, I think you're right. I mean, he would not Bragg would not have gone this far if he did not have charges in mind and and. Yeah. Tension to do that. So we'll, I think, again, I said this last week, I'm, so, I'm saying it again this week, I think we'll have a pretty decent sense um, this week whether or not New York's going to charge him. Yes. And I think we can conclude that our friend Andy McCabe is not a ham sandwich. All right. <laughs> um, let's go down to Georgia uh, in Fulton County. Judge McBurney, who is presiding 
over the Fulton County DA's case, has issued a scheduling order for Fonnie Willis to respond to Donald Trump's 51-page motion. Uh, It's a short order. Here's what it says. Uh, On March 20... 20, uh, 2023, former President Trump filed a motion that, that, if granted, would quash the final report of the special purpose grand jury, a body the Superior Court of Fulton County authorized to investigate possible criminal interference in the 2020 general election in Georgia. That kind of gives me a hint <laughs> right there um, about how this might go. The motion also seeks the disqualification of the district attorney's office from any further investigation into or prosecution of such alleged interference. The district attorney's office is ordered to file a response to that motion no later than the 1st of May, 2023. That response, beyond addressing the various contentions in the former president's motion, should also include an opinion on whether the motion requires a hearing for proper resolution. So ordered this 27th day of March, 2023. And, you know, I got to say a couple things here stand out to me. The May 1st deadline is not a quick clip. Yeah, but on the other hand, that does, you know, you can, Fonnie Willis can can do what she wants with that, right? On the one hand, if you want time to put together a very complete brief, cite everything out, you have that option to wait, a, what, a month and a week, right? Or she may be, there, there's nothing saying you may not file it until April 1st. So, or I'm sorry, or May, May 1st. 1st yeah. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, I can see her if there's a very short, you know, sort of legal argument, or even if it's not short, if they can get to a place where they put it down and it feels you know, complete and they're ready to go, they're under no obligation. I mean, it's no later than May 1st, not until at, on May 1st, you must file. So, you know, I'm not sure, I would not be surprised to see some filing before then. And there's some, you know, you can, I, you, speculation about whether or not timing given local Georgia politics makes a difference. There's some, you know, there was some reporting saying, look, that the legislative session in Georgia ends on Wednesday as we're listening as this episode comes out. So perhaps, you know, there's some political advantage to Fonnie Willis to wait until Wednesday to eliminate sort of legislative nonsense. But again, Wednesday is not May 1st at all. So, um, We'll see. You know, and then the, the other thing is, like, keep in mind, this this order is coming from McBurney. This is the same judge, McBurney, who oversaw the special purpose grand jury. So this is the guy who was in charge of it, who was running it, who was ensuring that it complied with the law, who was ensuring that, you know, everything coming out of it, he supervised and oversaw. Yeah, I think that's why he was like, uh, yeah, the special purpose grand jury that was duly authorized, blah, 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 blah. like he almost kind of puts it right in the order, right? And and we got to remember, this is totally separate from the regular grand jury, which she is now presenting evidence to. And so this filing doesn't, I don't think, have any bearing on whether she uh, indicts. She can indict before she responds to this Um to, to this particular motion, because it's a completely separate endeavor. It's a totally different work product. Um, and, you know, you can still continue to litigate the special purpose grand jury, even after the regular grand jury, I think, has done its its duty. And I, I, I that, again, is just my opinion on this. But they seem very, very uh, separate. Um, and then I think the other funny thing that stood out to me is you should address whether this motion requires a hearing. The way that I read that is, oh, and by the way, also tell me if we even need to fucking come into work for this. Like, do I need to shave my legs for this? I don't think so, but whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, it was all it was reminiscent of on the other side when Eileen Cannon put out a minute order to Donald Trump saying, hey, you need to address jurisdiction, whether it's an, uh, anomalous or not. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, because an anomalous jurisdiction argument would have been a much stronger argument. But they didn't pick up on that cue uh, and went forward with their regular jurisdiction arguments, which failed. And I mean, they all would have failed, but it, they might have been able to delay a little bit longer if they had gone for anomalous uh, jurisdiction in the Eileen Cannon order. But the, I, I feel like judges can sometimes drop hints. I'm, I'm getting really good at reading between the lines. And I think that, uh, hey, and tell me if we need a hearing. Yeah, argue. And, I need to hear your arguments about a hearing. Normally, they just set a hearing schedule. Right. And I think they want some of it to be able, you know, there, there are a couple of things I think going on. One is to say, okay, government, you know, help. I think I have an idea, but, you know, you have a lot of resources. So go through and look at the law and come up with your theory and rationale and maybe 
there's something there I haven't thought about that's compelling. And then the other thing is, you know, creating a record that will uh, withstand any sort of appeal. So again, you know, not knowing what the process would be in the state of Georgia to appeal a special purpose grand jury, but the, you know, the judge making sure that he's asking all the parties to provide all their arguments so that there isn't some procedural misstep that if he rules, as I expect he will, that this is a BS filing on the part of Trump, (laughs) that it is so complete in the way that the process ran that there's Good no process, ability for yeah. anybody to poke a hole in it. But I, you know, I don't, who, my expectation is that Funny Willis will say, no, we don't need to have a hearing. Here are all, you have all the facts you need. Here's our argument. Here's the reason we think that. And, um, you know, go ahead and issue an order. And to your point also, that doesn't, that's for the special purpose grand jury. That doesn't have anything to do or any bearing on the, uh, you know, the actual grand jury that would charge or bring charges. Yeah. And and we got we got to remember this due process stuff. You know, a lot of people get really frustrated when they're like, oh, an administrative stay was issued pending appeal. Uh, they heard it. They denied it. Uh, another administrative stay was, uh, you know, uh, issued from Clarence Thomas pending appeal to the Supreme Court. We got to hear it. And every time I post some news, somebody's like, he's just going to appeal it. And it's like, well, yeah, that's his right. It's his right to appeal it. And if we don't tie up all these loose ends now, they're going to come back and bite you in the ass during prosecution and trial and on appeal of any conviction, potential conviction. We've, we're, we're seeing the Department of Justice do this now with the utilization of obstructing an official proceeding, uh, 18 U.S. Code 1512 C2, uh, where 18, 17 judges say that it's proper to charge these January 6th rioters with 1512 C2. And one judge, Judge Nichols, says, no, I don't like the word otherwise. It means that it has to be paper or, you know, I mean, it's just the weirdest thing. But now the DOJ is fighting this battle in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals to ensure that g- going all the way up potentially to the Supreme Court, that everybody's interpreting the statute the same so that it can't be overturned if they say charge Donald Trump with obstructing an official proceeding or John Eastman or anybody uh, higher up and that they don't have to go out back and vacate convictions of January 6th folks for 1512 C2 based on that. So the, all of that stuff just takes so much time. Uh, But that is a criminal defendant's uh, and a potential criminal defendant's right to go through that due process, hear all the arguments, tie up all the loose ends. And judges, that's how judges operate so that when their ruling comes down, it is not challenged or it's not challengeable. It's sturdy. It's got a a good foundation on it. it. You know, it would be like building a house without a foundation if you didn't allow these arguments to play out. Uh, the way that that they need to. And I think down here uh, back in Georgia, you know, Fonnie Willis is still investigating as far as as far as we know. She she took that report and she's not simply taking it at face value, which I think is important for the case, because it's going to take away the argument that there was a rubber stamp in the regular grand jury and it was just based on this, you know, Emily Coors person's opinion or whatever. I could I can hear it in my head. Uh, but she wants to bring in Christina Bob. Uh, that was a couple of weeks ago, uh, and we don't know well, what other. It was good ep- because it it freed up Bob to then go down this weekend to Waco, Texas, to help cover Trump's little uh, oh. campaign launch event. But yeah, oh, sorry. Good. Yeah, she had to get that done uh, before she went down there. But uh, you know, th- there's just all these different procedural aspects of an investigation that have to be considered, so that when you do indict, if you do bring a case that it is on a very solid footing uh, because all due process has been exhausted and no rights have been uh, violated of, of any potential criminal defendant. So that's what we're seeing. Um, and I, I like how Fonnie Willis responded because everyone's like, you said imminent on January 24th. It's March. It's almost April. And she said, look, imminent in legal terms, not imminent in reporters terms. And, and you know, it's very I said I said imminent meant like three weeks in government speak. I was way short, <laughs> you know, which just goes to prove the point that these things uh, take a lot of time. Uh, also, the Senate and the House down there in Georgia passed that bill to have a, a prosecutorial oversight commission. Uh, and that is expected to go to Governor Kemp's desk and he may sign it 
uh, into law. And I think that that might be another reason why she, you know, if she's waiting, if she's not still investigating to wait until that legislative session ends. But again, this is all tea leaf reading, you know, this is all just sort of speculation. And we will, you know, I've always said, like, we will see when we will see. Um, but, you know, we, we've, it's always, for me, it's the news about the investigation as it happens is just as important and has to be, uh, has to be reported. Yeah, no doubt about it. And it's better, you have to be complete in a circumstance like this because, you know, it's it's an extraordinarily high profile case. I mean, people wondering like, well, why, why, why do they want to talk to Bob if Bob is going down there and covering Trump events? Well, you know, Bob quite likely, there, there will be defense witnesses as well as prosecution witnesses. And so one of the things you want to do as a prosecutor, as an investigator is get people, you know, who, who may well be on Trump's side, but Bob, who was certainly present, it appears at multiple phone calls, um, not only to Raffensperger, but to second second call as well, but to get them on the record, knowing exactly what they're going to say, so that whether you know if you bring charges against Trump, if Trump's team then calls Bob as a witness, you want to already know what the answers are going to be to whatever the defense might try and ask him. So that's part of the reason you get. I mean, a I think there's new information about Bob's presence in some phone calls, and b you need to get all that in the record because what you don't want to have happen is you rush in, you bring charges because you think you have strong witnesses, and then you get to a point where you're approaching trial and you've got you know defense witnesses being called. And there are questions that are going to be asked that you haven't already asked and you have no idea or you only suspect what the answer is going to be. So, you know, I I think it's completely appropriate and frankly normal to be seeing this sort of like just tying up loose ends on this path. Um, Nothing, I mean, then nothing in the law and, and prosecuting cases is fast. And I think as much as all of us would like some measure of like, you know, it's been two years or however long, why are we still waiting? We're waiting because our system is set up to be very deliberate, and I think it's a good thing. Because the last, you know, for anybody who's arguing, hurry up. Do you want to be able to make those same hurry up arguments if Trump is reelected and you have Alina Habas, the Attorney General of the United States of America, or do you want the same procedural, get it right, protect, and make sure we're doing this appropriately sort of measures in place? So, uh, you know, I think it'll come. And, you know, within the next couple of weeks, probably not. But, you know, by the summertime, yeah, I think so. Yeah. And and we also have to make sure that any other testimony Bob has given to any other agency, which she has, uh, doesn't conflict with the testimony that you're going to present, uh, because that makes the that can impeach the witness. We saw we saw that happen with Jim Baker in the Sussman case. He told Congress one thing, the inspector general another thing and, and the grand jury another thing. And that made him a completely useless witness. And the only witness that John Durham had, one of the main reasons outside of materiality, that that whole case was uh, that uh, when that wasn't dismissed, he was acquitted. Um, right. And to and also to that point, and it also, you know, the fact that there in some cases, it looks like John Durham didn't know about some of the things that were in the government's possession that he only learned very late in the process that Horowitz had, you know, some texts or information off of phones from Jim Baker and others points to the reason why you don't rush into things. Because when you rush into yes. things, you have a sloppy case that falls apart and you look terrible. And that's what Durham did not once but twice. So, you know, again, it's, we can, we can, whenever that, his, his report, whenever he emerges from the basement of the Department of Justice in 2027, we can have a special yeah. uh, session can. to break down, you know, the, the 12 years of his efforts and what became I could do a it. whole show of just laughing at Durham. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, yeah, like you said, these things are important and, and that's why, um, you know, even that whole thing where I was the whole concept of asking for a stay and getting an administrative stay pending a, an appeal where they ask for a more permanent stay or, or grant another stay. All of that stuff is uh, very important to the process. It does take a long time. And that is kind of, you know, what what the Trump side is latching on to is the delay. And, and speaking of stays, uh, we have uh, some information about the uh, Peter Navarro case that we've been covering on Cleanup on L45 for a while now, but we got to take a quick break before we get to it. So uh, stick around, everybody. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Dan Dunn, host of What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, the most wildly entertaining adult beverage-themed podcast in the history of the medium. That's right, the boozy best of the best, baby. And we have the cool celebrity promos to prove it. Check this out. Hi, I'm Allison Janney, and you're here with me on What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. And that's my sexy voice. Boom. Boom is right, Academy Award winner Allison Janney. As you can see, celebrities just love this show. 
How cool is that? Hey, this is Scotty Pippen, and you're listening to The Dan Dunn Show. And wait, hold on. The name of the show is what? All right, sure. Scotty Pippen momentarily forgot the show's name, but there's a first time for everything. Hey, everyone. This is Scoot McNary. I'm here with Dan Dunn on What Are You Drinking? What's it called again? Fine, twice. But famous people really do love this show. Hi, this is Will Forte, and you're, for some reason, listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. What do you mean for some reason, Will Forte? What's going on? Hi, this is Kurt Russell. Listen, I escaped from New York, but I couldn't get the hell out of Dan Dunn's happy hour. Please, send help. Send help? Oh, come on, Kurt Russell. Can somebody out there please help me? I'm Dita Von Tees, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. <laughs> Let me try one more time. Come on. Is that oh, right? What we're no, drinking? It's amazing. It's, it's, it's amazing. Right, it's just... Is it right? Ah, that's better. So be like Dita Von Tees, friends, and listen to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Time to take a look at something you've been covering on the show, Allison, for a long, long time. This is Department of Justice's lawsuit trying to retrieve presidential records from Peter Navarro in the form of emails that he sent using a private ProtonMail account. Now, this is nothing new. I'm I'm surprised, you know, like having preached, you know, things take time. Nevertheless, that we're at the end of March 2023, and the United States government still does not have from Peter Navarro the presidential records that he generated while a employee of the United States government at the White House. I, I just, it's surprising to me that we're here, but yet we are, and I, you know, Kind of, if, I don't know if you want to, you probably know the backstory a little in, in better detail than I do if we want to sort of like run through how we got to where we are right now. Yeah, sure. And also, he's just refusing to hand shit over, right? So he had a, a Proton Mail personal email account. Um, oh, interesting. Personal email account used for government work. Yeah. Um, and Lock her it, this up, is right? when he was, <laughs> this is when he, do you know anything about anybody? Yeah, who, I, yeah it, it's funny. I, th- I think you're not supposed to do that if memory serves correctly, <laughs> but that's, that's just me. Jared, so Jared was, told him uh, over WhatsApp and his, you know, their three-way chats with MBS that it was fine to use Proton Mail. I'm sure. So that's why he did it. Oh, totally. Um, and and uh, so he, he, he was the COVID advisor. And there's a bunch of emails. He used his private account to, to do some, uh, you know, government work over talking about ivermectin and we got to push this and we got to push ivermectin and bleach in the veins. I don't know. It's all bad. We, you know, we've gone over some of these emails. It's all just ridiculous uh, BS. But regardless of the content of the emails, they are presidential records and the Department of Justice said we need them back and sued him. And he said, no, they're not. I'm a special guy. I don't need to hand over those I'm asserting white male privilege. Isn't that a thing? (laughs) (laughs) Right. I have some sort of privilege. Um, Now, Navarro was ordered to hand over the emails, which pertain to his time as the COVID advisor. And then Navarro filed a motion for a stay. Now, now that he's been ordered on the very last day that he could, he filed a motion for a stay, arguing that his he could win on the merits. And his merits are statutory ambiguity, saying the Presidential Records Act doesn't, it's, it's murky, uh, and a lack of precedent. Hey, there's never been another COVID advisor wanting ivermectin that sent emails on Proton Mail that you want back. Like, like precedent. Uh, he added the argument that D.C. is not a state, <laughs> so its laws cannot be applied by the D.C. District Court? <laughs> a federal court? I don't. I don't. I read. I don't even understand that argument. Yeah, dramatic, dramatic foreshadowing. Let's let's wait and see how that works out for him. <laughs> <laughs> dun dun dun. Uh, he he also argued he would be irreparably harmed if he has to give his emails back, uh, or turn them over. I should say for the first time, not give them back. Uh, Department of Justice argues that's impossible because Navarro has no possessory rights. He doesn't own them, and he was obligated 
uh, to incorporate them into the White House records system within 20 days of creation, which he failed to do. Quote, defendant cannot be irreparably harmed by producing documents he has no right to possess in the first place. That's like if I stole a bunch of money from the 7-Eleven and they, I got in trouble and had to give the money back. And, and I said, I, but I'll be irreparably harmed if I give this money back. I won't be able to pay rent if I give this money back. It's not your money. You can't be irreparably harmed uh, by having to give that back. Now, DOJ argues the public interest weighs heavily in favor of the U.S. having a complete record of every presidential administration. They also argue that the law is clear. They go through this, you know, they've they've already argued all these points in, in having to have him turn them over. And based on those arguments, the DOJ contends that Navarro meets none of the factors. There are, you know, certain factors you have to meet in order to get a stay. And he has fallen extremely short. He won't win on the merits. His merits are stupid. He's stupid and his face is stupid. He's not going to win. And his arguments are terrible. And here's why. They spell it out wonderfully in this filing. It's just it's only nine pages. It didn't take long to shut this shit down. Uh, and that was the latest that we had, right? That was the latest info we had on this case. Yeah, yeah. And in, until in, now, the the breaking news yes. on, on Tuesday morning, just after nine o'clock, you know, the table is set, right? You, you have the place setting from Peter Navarro and the place setting from the Department of Justice and the typical basement cosplay law that seems to afflict the entire Trump kingdom on the one hand and a very <laughs> logical, well-reasoned, completely makes common sense place setting on the part of the Department of Justice in the United States of America. And so, so this morning, just probably less than an hour ago, uh, Judge Kolar Catelli, who is nobody's dummy, issued a 13-page order Ruling against Navarro. Now, I'll give you some snippets that I just pulled out literally right before we went on the, the air. But the too long didn't read version is essentially Willy Wonka saying, you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. So it starts out page one. I said good day. <laughs> page one. Not even, off the, not even off the little pleasantries at the beginning of the ruling. Page one starts after the first paragraph or so. If this is a case of first impression... As he contends in seeking a stay pending appeal, it is only because, unlike his many thousands of public servant predecessors, Dr. Navarro is apparently the first to steadfastly refuse to comply with the act's requirements and, in excuse, assert a series of meritless arguments to evade his statutory responsibilities. At its heart, Dr. Navarro's motion is little more than a rehashing of the same arguments the court has previously rejected on the merits. Defendant's newfound concerns for federalism fare no better than his earlier arguments. Because he has not shown a likelihood of success on the merits, irreparable harm certain to occur absent interlocutory relief, or a weighty interest in retaining property that he concedes does not belong to him, no stay shall issue. So, you know, if you could you could put down the filing, uh, you know, at the beginning of the second page and, and be done. But it gets it gets better. And, you know, some some couple of snippets after that. This is not a case of first impression, nor is it the first whiff of, quote unquote, tyranny for the United States to seek the return of presidential records and only presidential records that are by law its property not the private property of Dr. Navarro, as he now seeks to contend in framing his appeal. It is not a case of first impression that the United States seeks recourse through the courts. It is not a case of first impression that a court may issue a writ of replevin in favor of the United States. It is not a case of first impression that the courts utilize federal rule of civil procedure to avail themselves of writs of replevin or similar remedies under the laws of a foreign state, C.E.G. Bank of America, N.A. versus Juan Sam Yee, and a citation. Yeah, see a million cases. Yeah. See a million different things. <laughs> that, that, and turning to D.C., quote, that the District of Columbia is not a state but a quote-unquote federal district, as Dr. Navarro repeatedly declaims, is a distinction without a difference for these purposes. And also a false legal premise rejected by a half century of Supreme Court and circuit precedent instructing the federal courts to treat District of Columbia law as state law. <laughs> and then just, just one more juicy tidbit and we can have, have takeaways after that. And while it is indeed self-evident that once produced the documents, which belong to the government, are no longer kept and violate in Dr. Navarro's possession, given that he has made no showing whatsoever that he has a right against self-incrimination from their production, he cannot demonstrate an irreparable injury. 
So, you know, just piece by piece, argument by argument, the, the court went through and said, no, no, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is incorrect. And it isn't a, I found that, well, you know, there's some in this balancing test, some mitigating factors, some aggravating factors, and I have to say, no, it just tore apart every argument that he made. So I think, you know, hopefully, again, this is denying a stay. He can still appeal it, but his production of it is not at least going to be stayed by the district court. So, uh, you know, it's whether you want to call it salty or tart, whatever whatever adjective flavor you like coming from a court's writing. This is this is not a very um, it's it's uh, unsparing, I would say. It's yeah, like, and, and let's talk about his his self incrimination thing, right? Because this was a, a very funny part of the entire case to me. He said, "Hey, if I hand over those records, that proves I violated." The Presidential Records Act, which means I could be charged. Uh, and so he tried to argue that producing these presidential records would violate his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, uh, even though documents don't really pertain. And the fact that the government just didn't come out and fucking charge him, they sued him, uh, you know, indicates that they aren't intending to to charge him. Now... I don't know if that's the case. He might hand them over and the government might go, oh, yep, these are presidential records. We should charge him. But they've had access to see all these records throughout this entire process. They would have charged him if they had enough you know, evidence to to do so. They just want their shit back. This is different from, you know, the Donald Trump classified documents thing. You know, it, 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 otherwise, the, the DOJ would have sued Donald Trump to get all those documents back instead of criminally investigating him and executing a search warrant. Right. That's not happening here. Um, and so it's a very weird argument. And I'm trying to figure out what it is. Is it really his concern about self-incrimination or does he just not want people to see his dumbass emails? Probably both. I mean, look, and to the point of like, you know, the court made multiple requests. They cited in this order and in the private, the previous um, orders coming out saying, look, you are claiming this harm under the Fifth Amendment. Get, show us something. Make a showing that we can decide that, oh, yes, in fact, that is accurate and you're, you're not required to turn it over. So it, he, he keeps saying it is and asserting it without any sort of fact to buttress that assertion. And the court has repeatedly said, all right. You're you're asserting this. Show us. Give give the court some sort of proof or evidence that this in fact would occur, and did that on multiple times to the point of like you know no no district court wants to be overruled if it gets appealed to the circuit court of appeals, but saying look show us show us show us and in the absence of any sort of response with fact to that request, the court's saying look we've asked you failed to produce it therefore we're going to deny it and so you know one I think it points to I don't. I'd, if, if there was something there that was truly egregious, you would think that he would have produced it in a way to prevent it from being turned over. But it's not, you know, I don't know if that's ultimately a winning argument that, you know, at the end of the day, you know, a presidential record is a presidential record and whether or not you incriminate yourself. I mean, this isn't some testimonial issue where you're being compelled to, you know, answer something or provide something. It, it's It's the government, you know, to your point, it's, you know some robbers sitting on stolen bank money saying, well, this, you know, it's, it's not theirs lawfully to begin with. So, um, you know, we'll see. And I guess, I don't know how fast absent, what will be interesting is when, and if he turns it over since the stay hasn't been granted, how quickly that takes effect and how quickly, if he doesn't turn the material over, the government would move the court to say, you know, your honor, it's been, one day, five days a week. I don't know how long he hasn't produced it. You know, we're we're moving for 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 relief to to cause that to happen. Yeah, and he didn't make any arguments like Joffe made in the Sussman case, where I have a sort of Damocles hanging over my head. Durham says keeps saying he's going to charge me, and I think he's using that to blackmail me into, you know, uh, testifying, etc. There's no argument from Navarro like, hey, I've got the sword of Damocles hanging over. If I hand these over, the government's going to do this. So he's never come around and said, I will hand these over gladly if you give me an assurance that I won't be indicted. Or uh, let's talk about immunity from indictment in this particular case. There's been no discussion about anything like that. He just says, you're violating my Fifth Amendment right to self-incrimination without a showing, like you said. And without that even hint of an argument 
uh, it's it totally falls apart under scrutiny, under legal scrutiny. Yeah, and I'm curious to see what he turns over. I mean, some question in my mind about what he still has in his possession, what he might have, you know, not that he'd ever say he destroyed it, but what he got rid of, whether or not he knows, you know, does the government have through other, like, you know, whoever he sent these proton mails to, does the government have a general idea of like, all right, we know because we've talked to all these other people or called him in front of the grand jury that he sent, I'm making this up, you know, 150 emails from his proton account. And then if he finally produces this and he turns over 72 emails, the government's going to know that 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 wasn't a complete production because they've gotten missing emails from other parties. So, and 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 who knows what's in there? I mean, I, it, maybe that's why he didn't argue it. Yeah, well, I'm sure we can. We'll get you know set the timer now because in you know what time does uh, Jesse Waters or Tucker come on? Because he'll inevitably show up to complain about you know something goofy and crazy in about I guess what seven hours from now. Yeah, because. So. If you have to, you know, if you have to argue that it will irreparably harm me because you'll indict me because I shredded half of these, you know, then, <laughs> you know, well, hey, man, I mean, I could see why you probably wouldn't want to make an argument and argue about the other crimes you committed that you could be indicted for, but, you know, in the production of these documents, because then you just are like, hey, these are my extra crimes. Come and come and check them out. Um, it, I don't know. I just find it that I feel like if the DOJ knows about those extra things, they're not waiting for proof after production from a civil suit to to nab him. But who knows? I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, I, th- again, there would be even if there was something clearly when he if he produces and or if certainly if he fails to produce something the DOJ knew he did being able to take that and then move to the step of saying, okay, we know he had it and he willfully destroyed it because he didn't want to turn it over is a big step. You need some sort of information indicating that obstruction was going on. And then even if you had indications of that to sort of put all that together and figure out, okay, does this, looks like it violates the law. What can, what evidence do we have? Let's, you know, brief that. How do we want to time that or leverage that against him? Because, you know, certainly like many other people you're looking for, he's not as critical as like Mark Meadows, but if you found all these things, at some point you want to look at between the Eastmans and the Jeffrey Clarks and the Navarros and the Meadows to find somebody who is criminally culpable that the government can say, here's your choice. Cooperate with us and we'll you know, give you a deal. Or you're going to jail for a pretty long time. And you know Peter Navarro may not be the top of that list of people, but he certainly would be if I'm looking for a cooperator in that, in that group of people. Um, now he's, from what I've seen of his temperament, I don't know if he's a very <laughs> viable he's cooperator, weird. let's say, let's say he's it that really way. really weird. Uh, yeah. So, you know, we'll see. But I mean, clearly I think from what we've seen, it needs to be, you know, at a minimum for contempt, needs to be in jail for a little bit, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I, that would be good. Um, but you know, we'll see how this all plays out. And I mean, I could just see it like, Hey, how about you just promise me you won't indict me when I turn everything over. And then DOJ's like, why would we indict you after you turn everything over? It's we're a little bit that We're a little bit, that mile marker was a good, you know, 15 minutes behind us, buddy. So Yeah, uh, totally. Well, I'm glad that uh, decision came down and I, I enjoy the spiciness of it. Um, it was pretty funny. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, We'll see if there's a response. We'll see what happens in this case. Uh, but I, I'm assuming at the end of that order, you have it, right? Did, did it, it, He was ordered to hand everything over again. Right. Yeah. And it's like the stay has not been granted. So that's period, full stop. He doesn't now, you know, can he appeal to the Circuit Court of Appeals for a stay? Yeah. Possibly. But I just don't see, you know, they would have to, it, it seems like a very straightforward um, order. And, you know, they don't, there's no right that they have to take it up. So I can see... You know, at this point, he's has to has to get it over. The stay is not being granted, and the yeah, the know, next steps. You're right. Would be a pl- ask for an emergency stay pending appeal from the D.C. District or Circuit Court Circuit. of Appeals, and if they turn it down, you can ask the SCOTUS for an emergency administrative stay. I don't think they're gonna. I think they're gonna laugh this one off. But you know, we'll see. Right. Right. Agreed. So. All right. Well, that's the show. It's been lovely. Yeah. Um, we will see what happens uh, on uh, today if you're listening to this show on Wednesday over down, you know, down there in um, the Manhattan District Attorney's Grand Jury. Uh, I'm going to keep my eyes on a couple of really great accounts. Robert Costa, Kyle Cheney, Garrett Hake. 
Uh, they've been telling us how many jurors show up. Uh, you know, who, who that, you know, oh, that guy looks an awful lot like David Pecker, you know, <laughs> that's kind of the <laughs> the reporting that we've uh, been getting. And, and so they're down there on the ground uh, and uh, we will see if there's a vote tomorrow. And then, hey, if not, we'll, you know, we'll just keep reporting the news as it happens. Uh, and uh, we'll just, you know, hey, man, we'll just go from there. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. All right. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Have a great week, everyone. Yep, have a great week. We'll see you next time on Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. M-S-W Media. Hi, I'm Dan Dunn, host of What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, the most wildly entertaining adult beverage-themed podcast in the history of the medium. That's right, the boozy best of the best, baby. And we have the cool celebrity promos to prove it. Check this out. Hi, I'm Allison Janney, and you're here with me on What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. And that's my sexy voice. Boom. Boom is right, Academy Award winner Allison Janney. As you can see, celebrities just love this show. How cool is that? Hey, this is Scotty Pippen, and you're listening to The Dan Dunn Show. And, wait, hold on. The name of the show is what? All right, sure. Scotty Pippen momentarily forgot the show's name, but there's a first time for everything. Hey, everyone, this is Scoot McNary. I'm here with Dan Dunn on What Are You Drinking? What's it called again? Fine, twice. But famous people really do love this show. Hi, this is Will Forte, and you're, for some reason, listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. Now, what do you mean, for some reason, Will Forte? What's going on? Hi, this is Kurt Russell. Listen, I escaped from New York, but I couldn't get the hell out of Dan Dunn's happy hour. Please, send help. Send help? Oh, come on, Kurt Russell. Can somebody out there please help me? I'm Dita Von Tees, and you're listening to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn. Let me try one more time. Come on. Is that right? What We're Drinking? It's amazing. It's amazing. Is it right? Ah, that's better. So be like Dita Von Tees, friends, and listen to What We're Drinking with Dan Dunn, available wherever you get your podcasts.